everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show Special March Series. In recognition of International Women's Day, I'm featuring a few amazing women entrepreneurs of Europe. Who says women can't have it all? My guest today comes close to someone who I think has it all. Marie Outhier is the Director of Product Management at Twitter. And prior to Twitter, Marie co-founded Aiden, an AI-powered marketing analytics platform that she sold to Twitter within three years of founding the company. And oh, along the way, she got pregnant and also started a family. So in my conversation today, we'll be talking about some of the most important lessons she's learned from her experience with Aiden. And we will also talk about raising angel funding and how we can increase the number of women entrepreneurs in Europe. And in case you're hearing some disturbances in the background, it's heavy rain in London. So I apologize for that from the beginning. Anyway, welcome, Marie. Hi, Nita. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. Okay, so... There has been a lot written about your journey from idea to sale of Aiden, but for the benefit of the audience that might not know, can you give a brief overview of what Aiden did and a very high-level timeline of going from idea to sale to Twitter? Absolutely. So I started the company with my co-founder in July 2016. And my co-founder, PJ, uh, was the CTO. So he came from a technical background and also went to business school. And my background was I went through a business school and did a lot of sales and strategy before I started the company. We just had a simple idea, which was to teach a computer program to do those things that a marketing analyst does. That means, first off, looking at the marketing data on Facebook ads, on Google ads, on Twitter ads, Snapchat ads, and then extracting some insights from this. So typically, the first version of our product would um, say something like, your top performing campaign is running in India on Facebook. And then it went a step further, it started suggesting changes. So instead of just reporting on the performance, it also said something like, you should shift 30% of your budget from this channel to this other channel. And then it went really deep into sort of granular uh, analysis. So the idea was really just to use a computer program to generate optimization recommendations in the same way that this same sort of system exists already in hedge funds in the financial world. We want it to apply to marketing. I see. So you founded the company in 2016, is it? Yes. Okay. And and then you sold the company in 2019, November, right? Yeah. So that wasn't planned at all. So just to <laughs> try to summarize this quite long journey, because three years here is very short, but when you're going through it as an entrepreneur, some days seem like it's like dog years. What happened is we raised the first seed round in 2016. $750,000. We actually announced it in 2017, but we had closed the round uh, in December that year. And we closed the round following our presence on TechCrunch Disrupt's Startup Battlefield, which was this competition where we were very privileged to, to be able to pitch our idea in front of the top VCs of Europe. We had judges from the, the best VCs who could challenge us. When we raised that uh, seed round, we then went on to hire our first employees. So up until 2018, we built the first version of the product, onboarded Airbnb, Uber, and Grish as our first clients. 
our product was really reliant on NLP back then, natural language processing. And we kind of pivoted a little bit in 2018 towards just using GUI, graphical user interface, because it was actually a good idea to use NLP, but good ideas sometimes uh, aren't super in the real world. They're actually not very easy to use. So we, we switched and then we raised another round altogether, raised 2.5 million. And we moved to San Francisco for three months in 2019 as a no YC program because we did not get into YC. So we got to the stage where they interviewed us. So we flew all the way to San Francisco for, you know, we flew 12 hours for 10 minutes of interviews, as I like to say. And then they said no. And it was a great experience. And we thought, okay, well, you know, since we're there, since we have been traveling anyways, back and forth for the last three years, why don't we spend three months here and try to soak it all up, the knowledge there, the product knowledge, all those great companies like B2B SaaS, Segment, Stripe, you name it, they're all there. So we thought, why don't we bring the team here as well? We're all going to learn and be better and the company is going to be better for it. Within those three months, we pivoted from an enterprise sale to an SMB sale. We launched on Product Pound. It was, it was a huge success. We got to number one at some point during that time. And then we received some acquisition offers, which we weren't planning to sell the company. We were preparing our Series A. We got two term sheets very quickly from two big tech companies. One of them was Twitter. And we just really hit it off with Twitter. And I ended up having a chat with Jack Dorsey. And we just thought, actually, this makes total sense because we could have such a big impact by integrating our technology into the Twitter stack. So we shook hands and ended up selling the company, which in hindsight was obviously a great timing because COVID hit right after it and it would have been very challenging. So yeah, that's the story. That's like the fairy tale story as far as I can tell from an entrepreneur perspective. I'm sure there's a part of you that can, wants to pr- probably continue doing it, but I think that's a pretty good um, ending to a, a great journey that you seem to have had. I do understand, of course, how a perception plays out, but I think it's also uh, fair for me to, to remind everyone here that there is something called a survival bias, which is obviously all of your the people you're hosting on the show will probably have had a relatively good experience, but nine startups out of 10 disappear within two years, which could totally have been our fate. And it doesn't mean that all those other startups don't have great stories, but it's of course true that if you have an ending like this, then people at least know about the whole story. It might seem very uh, glamorous from outside, but it's been quite hectic inside, but I'm happy it ended up this way for everyone. Absolutely. So my one question, you moved to San Francisco in 2019 after you started the company. And you have said that the reason you moved is because you just wanted to be in that place. You went for the YC thing and you wanted to be there to soak up the knowledge there. Given that we're now in this post-pandemic world, do you think companies still need to relocate to US to get that traction or to get noticed by potential acquirers or for any reason? Do you think that has changed because of the pandemic? I do. I think you can work from anywhere. I've actually seen people on LinkedIn, instead of saying where they live, they say Zoom. Because you could just jump on a Zoom call wherever you are. I do think that it's uh, a lot easier. I've invested as an angel investor in remote companies as well that don't have a headquarter. They're just in five, six different countries. And it does work. I think asynchronous uh, work is really a thing. However, it's not that you have to move to San Francisco. There's no such thing. but you know, the, there's a saying that says basically that the harder I work, the luckier I get. But I also think that mm. if you're in lots of different places, then your opportunities for luck multiply. 
as well. So you don't have mm. to be in the Bay full time. We didn't live there for a long time before. We were just traveling there back and forth. And we didn't have to live there to exist in the ecosystem. We were sort of known because we had lots of relationships that we kept maintaining over email or over video calls. But I do feel like you have to travel there at least a little bit if the industry within with that you've chosen has its top players, which was our case. B2B SaaS, it's over there. If you're doing something different, if you're doing drones, you know, you could go to Austin. I think it just makes sense to look at where the best people are and hang around with them a little bit to learn something. If you could write a book today about any one or two aspects of Aiden, looking back at your journey and reflecting on it, what would you write about? I think I'd write about the timing to start a company because I worked for eight years in different roles before I started this company. And I see a lot of women specifically approaching me now that I'm on the other side and telling me that it's inspiring to them because they're thinking of also making that transition to, to being a founder, but they're not uh, confident about whether they have enough expertise. I really want to say one thing. I'd probably write this in the book is that you need to achieve the unachievable. You need to disregard where your abilities end and stop trying to have all the skills before you can be a founder. Because I had very little skills in terms of what is required of a founder. Fundraising, I had never done it. Like yeah. managing lots of people, I only managed a few before. All those different things that you you need to to learn to be a good founder, I think, happen once you've made that decision. Yeah. I'll definitely discuss this. And the second thing is talk a bit more about the diversity in terms of hiring and the enormous benefits it has to surround yourself with people who don't think like you. And I don't necessarily mean just gender diversity. There's lots of different layers, but there's also cognitive abilities. So typically hiring introverts and extroverts and making it work because I was certainly victim of that without knowing that you t- you naturally surround yourself with people who think like you, have the same humor as you, the same interests because it, it's comfortable. But yep. innovation doesn't come from consensus. You have to surround yourself with people who have different degrees, different nationalities, different genders, just different perspectives. And it can feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes, but you have to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. PJ and I, my co-founder and I were so different, but we worked so well together. I'm I'm very lucky because from the outside, everybody sees, oh, that's such a success because they sold to Twitter. But the success I have is that I got to work with those people and learn so much from working with with engineers because I, I went to business school. I didn't really interact with engineers. And I feel so much richer for it just because of those human interactions. I've always wondered how you can do that well. How can you hire diversity when you have this natural inclination to hire people like you, is there any practical advice on how people can do that? What worked with us was that we were two and in the business. I was obviously CEO and PG was a CTO. However, we were hiring lots of engineers. So a lot of the recruitment was half technical and half cultural. We really were involved 50-50 in that recruitment process. We even involved some other employees as we grew into the process. But I think if you're compelled to make decisions with people who think very differently to you, then you have to create a new rule. But if you do it with someone who thinks like you, you're going to agree on everything and you're going to make the wrong decisions. 
And I was so bad at hiring just because somebody says they, you know, I exaggerate, but because somebody grew up where I grew up, just, well, that's cool. Let's, you know, let's hire them. I was like, okay, this is not good. I need to do something about this now because it's going to be a problem. So I told my investors, you've seen lots of different companies. Perhaps you've got a book to recommend or a podcast. And somebody said, yeah, you should read this book, which is called Who? The Methodology for Hiring. It's an amazing book. It's just a very simple methodology, but essentially it outlines how you should interview people by starting by their oldest job and then just asking four questions. The first one being, why did you get hired? The second one is, can you tell me about highlights? Third one about lowlights. And then the uh, fourth one, why did you leave? And it's very simple. You just ask those four questions for each of the roles that the person had and the story unfolds and the patterns emerge. So typically it could be a positive person where you see someone left because maybe they got offered another job or they wanted to do something they wanted to grow. Or actually people might say, I was misunderstood. It's never their fault. That you could also see some of those. It's something that we've been religiously following and uh, we had a technical side to the interviews because we were hiring engineers uh, most of the time and a practical side. But this uh, methodology also helped us to ignore our instincts because our instincts aren't always good and just to defer to something that's a bit more structured. Going back to your question, I think you have to be obligated to work with people who are different from you. So do a setup where you're going to have to consult other people because otherwise, because it's uncomfortable and people aren't usually going towards what's uncomfortable, you'll instinctively avoid it. And then you'll learn a lot less. I have heard of who and their methodology. I think it's great because it really forces you to not be ad hoc and subjective and completely different personalities, depending on who's interviewing a candidate and really use a methodology. So I want to shift our conversation a little bit towards angel funding. Not sure how many people actually know this, but I know that you're an active angel investor. Having been both an entrepreneur and now an investor, you have obviously seen both sides of the funding equation. And so I think your perspectives are going to be so interesting to hear on what entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs, should do and should not do when they're trying to raise their pre-seed or seed round of funding. The first thing I'd say is fundraising is a sales job. That means it's not um, black magic or rocket science. It has a methodology. If you feel completely lost in that thing, you should be reassured because there are methodologies and you could just look them up and apply them. The first thing is that you need to have a deadline. You were talking about do's and don'ts. The don'ts would be to go and speak to people who are angel investors. So typically to reach out to me and just say, I'm fundraising. Would you like to invest? What would be the right way to do it is to say, We're raising this much. This is uh, our business. Obviously, we can't invest in all the companies. I only have very little expertise, uh, which is focused on a niche. And that's B2B SaaS, not little expertise, big expertise in that domain. But if you come to me and say, I'm doing uh, an alternative dairy product that's going to be retail product B2C, then I will wonder why you reached out to me other than the fact that I'm an angel investor. Mm -hmm. So just be super specific and help yourself because you're doing this for yourself. You just want to diminish the amount of time it's going to take you to fundraise because it's super time consuming and 
draining. So have a deadline, explain why you want to reach out to this specific person, what they could potentially bring, what you see in them. And also just be super clear about your ambition. A lot of people just explain what's happening in the short term. They tend to explain their vision. Of course, what is their personal ambition matters to me because at seed stage or pre-seed stage, there is little to show in terms of product development. So it all falls down on why the entrepreneur is doing this. Well, B2B SaaS is quite large. Are there any specific niche within that that you focus on typically? I've done some things outside of that. I enjoy Invest for two reasons. I should have mentioned that. The first one is that I want to give that because when I fundraised, I had on the first round, I only had males on my cap table, which is very traditional, but now the ecosystem is changing. Luckily, second time around, I asked to be introduced to women. If you want to be introduced to female angel investors, specifically say it. Because otherwise, people don't always think of doing it. And this is how I got introduced to Sophia Benz, who is now a partner at Sherry, who was previously at Atomico. But most importantly, Sophia is an operator. There's a lot of people who are actually got a wealth of knowledge on the field, but they don't advertise themselves necessarily because they're doing lots of other things. And so I think it's also good practice to, to ask to be introduced. I feel comfortable when there is B2B SaaS because I know some of the key metrics that are important B2B SaaS and some of the requirements. The second point is because I'm curious and it's intellectually stimulating to discover fields that I have zero knowledge about. It's a little bit contradictory, but I'm also lured towards things that I, I don't really know about. So I've invested in a, in a um, health tech company, which is fascinating and basically uses machine learning models to do precision medicine. So they use machine learning models to recommend the best treatment for patients who have a breast cancer. So this to me is super fascinating uh, and I'm really bullish on, on this industry. I've also invested in a drone company in the US, a robotics company. So hardware is something I don't actually know personally, but I'm interested mm. in. So mm. part of my angel investment strategy is, is geared towards discovering new things and supporting founders who I think are inspiring. And I get to sort of live their journey through their eyes. And the other part is just investing in things that I have a little bit of expertise in so I can be a bit more helpful than uh, just providing money. Has angel investing changed from when you raised angel to now? Yeah, I think luckily what's changing every year is that as there are more exits, there are more people who become liquid and who have experience on the field. And in Europe, if you look at where the wealth comes from, historically in Europe, money comes from industries. So big industrial money who now reinvest in startups instead of reinvesting in real estate. And it's not always good in that sense. What you want as an entrepreneur is to raise money from people who have already built companies. We managed to do that, of course, because there's more and more entrepreneurs coming both from Europe and the States. So we had a good mix. But I think what's happening is that there's a lot more operators who are now becoming angel investors as opposed to people who come from finance or bankers, that's a really good thing for the ecosystem. So obviously the way to find angel investors, especially if you're a woman and you're looking at seeking advice as well as money from other women, if you have it in your network, that's one way. What are other ways that women can look to find angel investor? What are some other places they can go to? 
I'm not sure I'm best positioned to answer that because I've done 12 angel investments, but it doesn't make me an expert of angel investments. The people who are expert answering those questions, I guess, would be people who've chosen to be professional investors, VCs and things Mm. like this, because they advise. And I think it's an important uh, question you're raising because some people might expect me to have some good answers on this, but there's two different things. There are people who are doing companies, founders, and they're busy doing companies and they actually don't compare themselves to other things. I've often been asked, was it hard to to fundraise as a woman? And I think recently I reflected on this and I thought, actually, I didn't know whether it was hard or not because I didn't really have a comparison. The VCs know who they see. Their job is to have large volumes of people knocking on their door. They can see a clear pattern in who's knocking on that door and who's getting the money. Whereas when you're the one who's knocking on the door, then you're just one person knocking on one door and then just knocking on all the doors. I think from that standpoint, I'd say I always use the cards you have in your hand. So if you went, for example, to business school and they have a strong network of uh, people who've Mm. uh, built companies, you should tap into that. If you went through an accelerator program, uh, YC or Techstars, you need to tap into that. You need to ask everybody who could give you access to what you're looking for. And it's a game because you need to make sure that you're doing it as quickly as you can. There is a timer as well. I can see clearly from your responses that you have a real passion for wanting to give back and helping other women, which is amazing. Do you have any thoughts on women founders in Europe? Do you think we're doing well compared to other geos? What else do you think we could be doing to increase the number of women founders? I think that's a very interesting question. I'm French and in France, so I live in England. I've been living in England for about 10 years now, but in France, the ecosystem is very different, the entrepreneurship ecosystem, because there is something called le chômage, which is you're getting paid when you're unemployed in France, if you've worked a little bit before. And it's fantastic uh, because it means for two years, people who are starting their companies are getting paid almost as much as what they were paid when they were working. That's basically a massive help. And it's allowing a lot of uh, people to think, okay, well, I could try this because it is de-risked. So that's a great thing. Now that I have two kids and I see the cost of childcare, it's ridiculous in England. I think it's super difficult. It's a complex question about women and entrepreneurship because on the one hand, I'm doing my bit, which is angel investments and I'm doing podcasts and telling the story how it is and hopefully giving women a lot of confidence in the fact that they can totally do it, but they can't do it alone. And the individual isn't greater than the system. So if you live in a system that forces you to spend, you know, three grand a month on looking after your kids, that's difficult. And it's literally like running a marathon with an invisible fridge on your back. You can be expected to cross the finish line first. It doesn't work. One thing I'll tell women who are listening to this podcast is that it really isn't your fault. There is nothing wrong with you. There is maybe something that needs to be adjusted in your support circle whether it's perhaps if you want to obviously create a company, perhaps get some help from your family or from your husband or your partner, or just move to a place that will allow you to have this help if you have kids, because otherwise you can be as ambitious as you want, but it just isn't possible. No one can do this. No one would be able to do this, whether they were a man or woman, it doesn't matter. Maybe that's where these grants come in. I know that some of the women I've spoken to initially, they applied for a lot of grants. I mean, I don't think that it's as sustainable as something like what France has. I had this woman on my podcast and she's like, well, I I applied for a bunch of grants, but I would get like 
500 pounds here, a thousand pounds here, 10,000 okay. pounds here. She's like, okay, it helped me, but it was also not something large enough for me to say, okay, I can hire people. I can accelerate what yes. I want to do because I, I kind of was living almost paycheck to paycheck as an entrepreneur. So it wasn't really a scalable manner, but that's what she did in the absence of a scheme like what France has. I think it's a really good point. And Maybe that's why these EU grants exist, but it sounds to me like for countries like in the UK, they need to do a bit more if they want to see more women take on entrepreneurship and take on the risks that come with it. One of the things that, that is quite key on this is to get to a stage where we'll have an equal amount of female CEOs as male CEOs. We'd also need to have companies that have equal paternity leave and equal maternity leave. People say, oh, women leave tech after eight years in tech. Yeah, of course they do, because it's usually the point where some decide that they'd like to have a family and it complexifies their day to day. And for reasons sometimes political, they don't always talk about it. But it's just very normal to think that when your day to day complexifies, you'll need to have solutions that are you know, equally burdened by the man and the woman, if that's the case, or both partners. In any case, I'm very uh, respectful of large tech companies, including Twitter, who are giving equal paternity maternity leave, because that is a huge game changer. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we're always going to end up mm -hmm. in the same conversations. How can women do more? They shouldn't do more. They should do less. It should be equal from yeah. that standpoint. And then they can do more in the business life, of course, if they're allowed to. So what's next for you? So you're at Twitter, I assume, doing similar things to what you were doing with Aiden or in that space. But just curious, what are you seeing as the next big thing? I don't know what's next for me. I mean, right now, um, trying to live in the, the present moment is already something because it's such a shock to your system to go from being an employee to starting a company. And those three years have been very crazy. And obviously, we had kids as well. You have your work life and your personal life. So it's many things happened. It's been extremely intense and I was looking for that intensity. So I really got it and I'm satisfied with that. But now I'm also like, okay, well take a breather and try to do that. And it's hard to learn to walk after you've been running for so long. So yeah. I think I'm trying to not project myself and I'm trying to reset my brain so that I can learn from other people in a humble way through angel investments. I've done 12 so far and, and I still have a lot more to learn, obviously. But I think it's already a massive privilege to be able to interact with lots of different founders in different countries, um, in different industries, and have a, a little bit of the insights into what their day-to-day -day is like. In the UK, I invested in Grey Parrot AI with the fantastic founder who should interview called Michaela Druckmann. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's also an AI startup, but on the hardware side and AI is so huge. Mm. So you've got lots of different subdomains. So for me, what's next is just to try and learn. So it feels like I'm at university in America. So I've always liked the approach of our angel investors because they said, you know, we're angel investing, but we're kind of paying for university. And I like that mm. as opposed to other cultures, France's uh, a different approach to money and everything is free free because the taxes pay for it. But it, the perception is that you're not paying to go to university, whereas of course you are indirectly. But it, I, I have the same perspective on that. So for now, I'm very interested in what I'm doing at Twitter uh, and just learning what it's like to having a company acquired and maintaining this uh, startup culture. And all of this is 
fascinating. I've got lots to learn and I work with great people as well at Twitter and I haven't worked for a company that of that size before on products with such an impact. My objective is to soak up as much as I can right now. In the future, we'll see. The good thing is that you don't have to decide right now <laughs> to see what happens. Even if I had yeah. decided, we yeah. all have to learn with the pandemic. I think everybody learned not to make too many plans because they don't work out. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> the other thing that I always wondered, whenever a company does an acquisition, it's always something from the outside it looks like it's, wow, that's cool. These companies got acquired and yet it may make sense or it may not make sense. But then a few years later, you always find out they killed that product that they acquired. And I'm just wondering, you're in the inside. You are part of that acquisition. You came into Twitter. What's it like and how do you maintain your identity and continue to innovate Basically, how does that work? Well, I think that's really a case-by-case scenario in the same way that each company is unique. I mean, every company that acquires other companies spends millions of dollars in acquiring companies has a strong incentive to make it work. It's a pretty expensive gamble for for any company to do that. Of course, you hear about those um, horror stories about acquisitions because it's notoriously difficult to just take a small company and then integrate into this gigantic entity. The one thing I'd say about Twitter is that they are taking this super seriously. They were exceptional at integrating the staff. Everybody felt really at home. I'm really amazed about all the efforts they put into this. Sometimes it's too difficult. You can't force a marriage all the time. And this is why sometimes people decide that they are not going to stay in the acquirer's company. It's all about the culture fit. Ultimately, Twitter or lots of other tech companies are also very inclusive and do lots of efforts to make sure that different types of people are feeling that they're home, even if they're very different. So far, so good uh, as far as I'm concerned, but it's case by case thing, right? What about the product? How does the product that they've acquired fit into the overall roadmap? Do you see it being integrated into their platform? Is it a standalone that's going to grow? I can disclose what was disclosed at the moment of the acquisition is... Our product technology was bought because we want it to power the SMB experience at Twitter. So since we joined, we've been working on that, which is integrating our automated recommendations in the Twitter stack. This is something that's ongoing. It takes a bit of time to do because obviously there's lots of work in, in the back end to be done. And another thing that we're doing is working on other products for SMBs. What we're doing essentially is just putting our brains together and essentially improving the existing products that are serving the SMB space and also integrating our technology into the Twitter stack. It sounds like the acquisition has a a home within the larger vision that Twitter has or or a business line around SMB. So it's going to hopefully integrate and, and evolve together. Absolutely. Is there anything else that I should be asking that I haven't asked, Marie, that you want to share? Well, no, I think your questions are excellent. But one thing I will say is that there is no such thing as a self-made woman or a self-made man. There's always a number of people behind the scenes. In my case, my husband is one of them. He's done enormous amounts of support and work and patience throughout this whole experience. And I think it's important to say, because oftentimes the spotlight goes on the CEO, but obviously I co-founded this company with PJ, but also our entire team has been working nonstop and they made this whole success. I think it's important to also 
re-explain that it's never one one person's job. And I've also been helped by very benevolent people. One other advice I'd have for people listening to this podcast is that if you're starting a company or if you're thinking about starting a company, if you really, really want to do it, you can ask other people to give you 10 or 15 minutes of their time, even if it's people who seem unapproachable, as long as you make it 10 or 15 minutes of their time to tell you about their experience and you can learn from that. I think it's just fascinating how I was always surrounded by people who gave me a bit of their time to give me confidence in how to fundraise or how to secure a uh, huge talent that we wanted to employ. People who've already experienced those things can actually give you a little bit of their insights and their secrets and let you into their world. So what you're saying is you really need to have a support ecosystem around you. And it's like a child. You don't raise a child alone. You need you need a lot of people to help her out. And the same with entrepreneurship. It's kind of like a baby and you need that support system around you to be successful and to succeed. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the worst kept secrets, but also it's something that's a little bit contrarian because you feel so alone when you're doing this most of the time. Mm. You feel alone in your ivory tower, but but you're not. I think it's something that's worth highlighting. I, I hear this also from entrepreneurs about how lonely it is and some of them have been part of groups where it's really about like the therapy for CEO type of thing, because there's so many things going on at the same time. And my brother is an entrepreneur and and I, I think in two years of founding his company, all his hair went gray. So it's a pretty intense (laughs) ride. And I think that's really good advice to make sure that you spend the time to create that mentor network and that support network so that you can actually have that when things are down or when you need the advice. Okay, great. So at the end, I usually have this rapid round that I wanted to run through with you. There are short answers for questions outside of what we've just discussed. And I usually start with your favorite book, like any book recommendation that's influenced you as a person. Zero to One from Peter Thiel. I read uh, loads of business books, but this one I thought was crucial right at the beginning of the adventure because it helped us choose a product that was defensible and that would not end up in a situation where there's lots of competition. Okay. Do you have a productivity tool that you use or a productivity hack? We used Intercom. Uh, Obviously, it's more relevant for B2B sales companies, but that was a fantastic tool. It's so rich. Gave us lots of insights into our customers and their journey when they dropped off. It's just a beautiful product. You own any personal productivity hack, something that keeps you productive? I take notes. I'm very old school. That keeps me productive. It's actually a thing. It's called journaling. Somebody coined the term just to make it look sexier than what it is because it's just like being an old person writing in a book. To me, it's what works. What's your favorite city or is it France? Do you know my favorite city, I think... I'm going to say London because I lived there for 10 years. I've moved about seven times and it feels like I'm in a new country every time because it's just so diverse and very tolerant and open-minded. Great. And my last is, do you have a a quote that you have or that you use? One that I say is that we're our own worst enemies because oftentimes you may feel like you're not ready. You you need to have more skills. You need to have more experience or whatever to do something. When I decided to move to San Francisco with my co-founder, we took the whole team out for three months. I lived with my employees and I had a 14-month-old daughter. I was my own worst enemy because I thought I can never tell my husband that this is the plan 
because he's going to think, are you crazy? And people around me are going to think you're not a good mom. No one ever said that. Yeah. They were just like, that's great because your daughter, first off, will not necessarily remember this period of her life. But later on, if you succeed, yeah. she'll know about this. Uh, and again, it's just um, important to remember that most concerns you have are things that you're making up yourself in your head. You know, I saw the picture in one of your posts where you're sitting in a couch and then in the foreground is a picture of your daughter playing on the floor. And I just thought that's that's the modern woman entrepreneur who's doing her thing and making sure that a baby is there as well, but she's doing her thing. I love that picture. On that note, I think we'll end this podcast. Thank you so much, Marie, for joining me um, in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to keep looking out to see what you do next. And I hope that some of the people listening to the show reach out to you for advice, for mentorship, and maybe even for angel funding. So thank you very much for being on my show. Don't hesitate on Twitter, Marie, at Marie Uchi. You can reach out to me there. Thanks very much, Anita. It was a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.